Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who has written some of sports' most important books, including but not limited to Dynasty, the New York Yankees, 1949 to 1964, The Bronx Zoo, which he wrote in 1979 with New York Yankees pitcher Sparky Lyle, Bums, an oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Personal Fouls, a look at corruption in college basketball, American Zoom, a history of NASCAR, and Wild Height and Tight, his biography, Yankee manager Billy Martin. AJ and I look forward to every time he has a new book, because not only do we love reading them, but more importantly, we love talking to him. His latest book, Whispers of the Gods, brings to life baseball's greats from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s through timeless stories told straight from the players themselves. Cole from Peter's decades of interviews for his reporting and writing it is a pleasure to welcome the man who probably holds the record for most appearances on Sports Talk New York. One of my inspirations to become an author, our good friend Peter Goldenbach. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much. Good morning. So before we dig into this book, I, I find it so interesting that if you would go out to Amazon today and look at the top 50 baseball books, you would find that Whispers of the God is right up there, but the book that inspired you as well, the book, The Glory of Their Times, is right there with it. For sure. those who somehow have missed your many appearances on the show, can you tell us a little bit about what Lawrence Ritter's book meant to you and how his DNA is actually in Whispers of the Gods? Sure, that's easy. Uh, when I was a junior at Dartmouth, I was the sports editor of the Dartmouth newspaper. And so they'd send me books, uh, sports books. And one of the books they sent me was The Glory of Their Times by a fellow by the name of Larry Riddle. And I opened this thing up and I'd start reading a book of words by teammates of Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Shoeless Joe Jackson, um, people who played for Connie Mack and for John McGraw, and I was just absolutely mesmerized. I just, I, I probably read it 10 or 15 times in X number of years. Uh, and I was just, you know, amazed that Larry somehow, and don't forget, this was before the internet. Larry, somehow we became friends later on. And he told me that he spent three years going around the country. Um, primarily, he had gotten divorced and he was taking his son along with him. And this was a bonding sort of a trip for him and his son. And they interviewed all these fabulous players from the 1910s and the 1920s. And he said, really, he had no real thought about making it into a book, which I found odd, until the players started calling him saying, hey, where's my book? And of course, you know, the glory of their times, as far as I'm concerned, is the Bible of baseball. Uh, without that book, you, you would really have little idea of what it was like to be a ball player in the 1910s and the 1920s. And it was just, you know, just, you know, I adored, I, I adored Larry. Larry was such an interesting guy. Uh, we would go have uh, 
I had, you know, we'd go to, what's the name of the White Horse Tavern, I think it was, in, down in Manhattan, and we'd sit and, and, and I'd, I'd drink my one beer and he'd have a couple, and we'd sit and talk baseball, and it was, it was terrific, just terrific. And, and about, well, you know, I've spent 40 years interviewing ballplayers. You know, Dynasty was the first, that book came out in 1975. I did those interviews in 1973 and 74, and then came Bums, uh, Wrigleyville, Fenway, uh, Amazing. Um, am I forgetting anybody? I might be, yeah, Spirit of St. Louis. So, so. I have in my possession, you know, several hundred interviews on cassette tapes of all the players I interviewed. One of my favorite was, was Jim Bowden, who lived in Englewood when I lived in Englewood. And we were very, very close friends. I would babysit for his children. In fact, the last picture uh, in Whispers of the Gods is a picture of Jim and his his, his wife, Bobby, and the three children, They when they were 12, 10, and 9, which is how old they were when I babysat them. And about three years ago, Jim, Jim got Alzheimer's, which was very sad. And then last year, he died. And, and I thought to myself, you know, I, what can I do to sort of keep his memory alive? And what I decided to do was to write this book where I would take you know, 15, 16 uh, of the interviews that I did over the years. And he would be my first interview and my last in this book. And that's the way it works. Um, the first interview with Bowden is how he went from this sort of uh, invisible high school kid in New Jersey to become one of the stars of the Yankees. And then the last chapter is uh, how he managed to write ball four and the ramifications from that uh, and how you know, he was sort of banned from Yankee Stadium at the Old Timers Day for about 20 years because he was afraid that if he went, that Mickey Mantle wouldn't go. And that would be a terrible thing for Yankee fans. Um, Jim and I were like brothers. It was, you know, a shame that he died. Uh, but hopefully, as you know, part of what I'm doing in this book is keeping his memory alive. You know, as a follow-up to all of this, and as a lead into Whispers of the Gods, the Glory of Their Times, which I also am old enough to have read when it first came out, was published in what you might call the golden age of oral histories, with you know Studs Terkel being the foremost among the oral historians. Right. Do you think the genre has been somewhat blunted by the YouTube age? You know, so much is available for people to watch online. Did that any way affect how you wrote Whispers of the Gods? I'm not. Uh, I'm not one of those people. So, I mean, I've got a landline. You know, <laughs> I, I don't I don't adapt adapt very well. Uh, so I'm still interviewing people using cassette tapes. I'm still transcribing my own uh, tapes all by myself. Uh, it's not anything that a computer I've got some. I don't have any special computer translator that automatically listens to these tapes and somehow puts the words down on the. Uh, no. That's, that's not the way. I've been doing this for so long, and I'm not changing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was so, Mark and I have used one of these translation services to work on one of our, our books. And even with that, you have to go through it. You might as well transcribe it yourself. Yeah. So, 
I'll so, take your word for it. <laughs> it's interesting. John Thorne wrote the uh, forward to the book, and he, he quoted Keith. What a, what a gentleman. What a great guy. Yeah. Always has yeah. been. Yeah, I love when you, you get the uh, emails from the Hall of Fame when he used to write for them. It was fabulous stuff. But he quoted Keith Olbermann um, when Henry Aaron died. Um, it, yeah. He had become the 10th Hall of Famer to pass away in nine months. And Oberman's tweet, I believe it was, was all of the baseball cards are dying. Um, you know, it's interesting when you're younger and people of your parents' generation passed away, you don't really grasp what that meant to them. However, Oberman was able to sum it up in seven words. Seaver, Gibson, so many passed during the pandemic, which seemed only to amplify their passing. Why do you think so many of us somehow take those losses so incredibly hard. Oh, it's very simple. It's just that baseball is a religion, and all these people who we're watching over the years are sort of gods. Um, they're important people in your lives. Yeah, you pay attention. You know, back then you paid attention to whether uh, Willie Mays got a hit or a home run, or Mickey Mantle did, or Duke Snyder did, or whether Sandy Koufax pitched a no hitter, or whether Bob Gibson did. Um, and and these people uh, were part of your family. I mean, it sounds weird, but it's true. I mean, th these these people you spent more time with these people than you did with relatives, and and they become very important to you. Um, I I think baseball fans are very very special. Um, there is a depth of you know love uh, for the game and for the people playing the game. Uh, I went last night to see the Rays, the Tampa Bay Rays, play the, the Miami Fish. And uh, <laughs> McClanahan, our lefty star, struck out 11 batters. And, and we're sitting there just with our mouths open. It's like, how does somebody throw a baseball 97 miles an hour? It's, it's just, it's, 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 it's incredible. And you appreciate it and you don't forget it. It's just part of the game. So... It and the one thing I think we all love about the game is that the game, even though there are different rule changes and things, it doesn't really change that much um, well, from generation changes. I mean, <laughs> come on. Come on. So, so obviously times change and, and everything from the past has to be viewed through a different lens. However, you know, I have to say in reading this book, some of the accounts such as Kirby Higby, uh, one of the Southern players that requested Branch Rickey not to sign Jackie Robinson, um, and he was later traded. Um, you know, he gains no sympathy from his firsthand accounting or Rex Barney using the N-word. And even though he was quoted, others used it. Really, it, you kind of get uncomfortable. So I got to thinking, like, when you were doing – the interviews back then, do you remember your reaction to what they were saying? And now when you listen to it back and you're, you're putting it on paper, is there a different reaction? No, heck no, no. The reaction is the reaction. Um, and the, the important thing is that the people reading this book have the same reaction I do. You know, I'm not, I'm not changing words around. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, how do I explain this? People, people ask me, they often ask me when they're interviewing me, tell me some of the things that you've left out that you can tell us about. Well, there is none of that. 
you know, um, it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I'm always amazed because I go into these interviews, it's a blank piece of paper. And everything these people tell me, I find fascinating. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the game. The people I'm talking to love the game as much as you and I do. You know, I see sort of a, a Rashman element to the book. You know, so many different takes on the same event. Jackie Robinson breaking the color line. Mm-hmm. Two questions come out of this. Can Mark, piggyback when Mark was saying, given that what some of the players, you know, Marty Mary and Kirby Higby in particular, say seem to fly in the face of the facts. Mm-hmm. Do you have any reservation about putting them in the book? And how intentional was it to make essentially Jackie Robinson the undercurrent theme of the book? chapters from Marty Marion, Rex Barney, Kirby Higgy, Monty Irvin, Roy Campanella. Well, understand something. Who was the most important ball player in the history of Major League Baseball? You tell me. Well, you can argue Jackie, Jackie, Jackie Robinson. Another, about Jackie you know? Robinson. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, was it, was it um, deliberate? Well, I think when you're interviewing people from a certain era, you find out why Jackie Robinson was the most important player in the history of baseball. He changed the game entirely. Do you find some of the things looking at that, and Mark was saying cringeworthy, and some of the things Marty Marion said in particular, and any, any reservations by putting that in the book? Hey, racists are racists, you know? I mean, that's just who they are. If they want to reveal themselves, uh, you know, I, I can't help that. I mean... <laughs> You know, you're trying as a historian, and I, I like to think that I'm a historian, as pretentious as that may sound. Um, but you're trying to write history. You know, you're not trying to talk somebody into having a different view. Uh, the idea is to ask them the question so that they tell them how they really feel about things. That's that's your job. So one of the chapters I loved is the Roger Maris chapter. And I, I, you know, it's interesting having read so much of, of your work, you know, the buildup to the interview reminded me of your seven novel. Like when we talked about seven, I, I said like, well, I was reading that novel. You could see it being like a, a Netflix miniseries. And one of the scenes that you painted so vividly was in the hotel room when Mickey was, you know, going through the dresser and packing. And for some reason, the imagery that you you had in the build up to the Maris interview, you know, the way Cleet Boy and Roger walk into the bar, yeah. the fact that Charlie Pride, a former Negro League baseball player, yeah. music was playing in the background. And then you just going out to the parking lot and sitting on a hood of a car. And obviously hood of the car reminded me of Bruce Springsteen song as well. But I think it was so important because it set up the whole reason why Roger Maris's guard was down at that point. And it played such a huge role in getting Roger to open up. Um, just could you describe that evening? You've just described it. <laughs> you, you just I just read the chapter to everybody. No, that, that, that's it right there. I mean, you just, I, Clint Boyer told me to come and meet him at nine o'clock in the morning. I said, fine. So I get there at nine o'clock in the morning and I'm drinking coffee with all these giant former high school football players with busted legs sitting around drinking beer. And I sat there from nine o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night, wondering where the hell is Cleet? 
but knowing I had to sit there because what's what's my option? You know, you can't leave. Uh, you have one opportunity to interview these people, and this was my one opportunity. So when he walked in with, <laughs> with Roger Maris, it was like, whoa, you know, this, you talk about serendipity. Uh, Cleet was about to fly off to Japan. He, he's, he had one more year of baseball in, in Japan. He was making a million dollars that year. Uh, Cleet's interview, which I will put in the Whispers of the Gods 2, was equally terrific. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I was sitting there with Roger Maris sitting across from me at the table. I had called Roger several times at his uh, beer distributorship in Gainesville. I had sent him a, a, a letter. Um, the, the Michael Burke, uh, who was the president of the Yankees at the time, wrote me a letter saying, you know, dear ball player, please cooperate with this guy. So I sent Roger that letter. Um, I went to the beer distributorship in Gainesville and his brother's telling me he's not there. So either he was avoiding me or he wasn't there. So imagine <laughs> what were the odds that when Cleet Boyer walked in the door, that Roger Maris was going to be with him. Not, not very great. <laughs> you know, of all the players in the book, I only saw Roger Maris, Jim Bowden, and Ron Santo play. Yet I knew of almost all of the 16, whether from my dad or right. stories relayed over the years from Rob Carner, Bob Murphy, and Lindsey Nelson on Met Telecast. That's right. Or from the many baseball books I've read. Yeah, The um, Boys of Summer. Right. Yeah. But one of the players I had never heard of was Ellis Cleary. And um, I, I was fascinated by everything in that chapter from his, his minor league manager's name, yeah. Wilbur Bill Romit Rogers. His roommate was Early Wynn and how yeah. Wynn showed up for the tryout. Um, Clary's race with Jesse Owens. But the one thing that like totally fascinated me and, and it's so weird how names come up. A good friend of mine, John Myers, and I went to a, a baseball card show in Philadelphia. And on the way, he was talking about some of his father's favorite players or just stories his father would tell. And the name Sig Jakuki came up. Yeah. And here in the, this chapter is his story. Could you share with our audience the amazing story of, of Sig Jakuki? <laughs> well, Sig was the star pitcher for the St. Louis Browns in 1944 and part of 1945. And Sig, unfortunately, was a roaring alcohol. He was a fall down on the street drunk. He also was kind of mean. And so um, they won the pennant in 1944, went to the World Series against the Cardinals and lost. So in 1945, the ownership of the St. Louis Browns decided to bring up Pete Gray to be their center fielder. Now, Pete Gray had one arm. Literally had one arm. He had lost one of his arms. It was run over by a tractor or something like that when he was a kid. Anyhow, this guy had one arm. And I think Vec was the owner, and he was playing him because he thought he would draw fans to the games. The, the St. Louis Browns players hated Pete Gray, who was something of a nasty guy. And they didn't feel he deserved to play because their center fielder was rather terrific. And he was sitting on the bench while Gray, who was hitting 219, was playing. So these players used to try to torture Pete Gray. 
And they would do things like find a dead fish and put it in the pocket of his sports jacket. You know, you know what? Hey, but he told me this story. I must have fallen on the floor laughing because, I mean, that's just, you know, you, you, you think about Pete Gray and how amazing it was as a one-armed player that he made it to the major leagues. You don't think about the fact that the, his teammates hated his guts. And so, so uh, Clary, Clary proceeded to tell me about Sig Cookie and how he was uh, always trying to uh, torture Pete Gray and 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 Jikuki at one point got in a in a fight with the manager in '45 and they kicked him off the team. And because they kicked him off the team, they didn't win the pennant in 1945. The Tigers did. So um, you know, for for the St. Louis fans, it was a fairly serious thing. Jikuki would have you know taken them back to the World Series, but because he he was so belligerent, they 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 fired him and his career was over. And there's a great scene in the bar with, with the shotgun. It's unbelievable. Um, you know, one of the things, and again, you know, over the course of, of many years, AJ and I have had so many different, you know, guests on. And um, we had a guest who was, uh, before Gil actually got inducted into a Hall of Fame, you know, had written a book, uh, The Quiet Man, about Gil Hodges, um, yeah. uh, Marina Amoroso. And he talked about basically Ted Williams was one of the main reasons that Gil Hodges was not in the Hall of Fame. You know, the theory was that there was jealousy that Hodges was getting all this credit with the set when he managed the senators and, and you know, Ted wasn't. And oh, that's you know, reading, I never knew that. That's interesting. Right. So that juxtaposed against your chapter of Ted Williams, you know, trying to right the wrong with Joe Jackson. Mm-hmm. I felt incredibly interesting. Can you tell our audience a little bit about Ted and Joe Jackson? Well, Ted uh, based his swing on Joe Jackson's swing, interestingly enough. I mean, nobody swung the same way Ted Williams did. He would always have these arguments about hitting. Um, who was he arguing with? Their second baseman who would say you should swing down on the ball. And Ted was always saying you've got to swing up on the ball, which interestingly enough, in 2022, seems to be what everybody wants to do now, which is to hit home runs. So now you got games where you have 11 strikeouts and two home runs. It's not sure it's the most interesting baseball of it all, but um, so Ted Williams was the one who started the idea of that you should swing up. At any rate, um, I'm sitting home here in St. Petersburg and the phone rings and I pick it up. He goes, Gollenbach. And I go, yes, it's Ted. <laughs> he says, hi, Ted. He says, I want you to come over here. I want to tell you why Joe Jackson belongs in the Hall of Fame. Well, when Ted Williams calls you, you say, okay, I'll be right over. He was about an hour and a half, two hours away in Ocala. So I put the phone down, got in the car, and drove over to Ted with my tape recorder. And he proceeds to tell me for the next hour why Joe Jackson belongs in the Hall of Fame. And and with that great Ted Williams intensity. Just... You know, it's, it's just fabulous. And, and in the middle of the conversation, he says to me, we got to call Bob Feller. He'll tell you the same thing. So he calls Bob Feller in Cleveland. Bob, it's Ted. Tell this guy why Joe Jackson belongs in the Hall of Fame. So Feller says something like, yes, Ted, I, I agree. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. Ted goes, okay, thank you very much, Bob. He hangs up and goes, <laughs> goes back to talking more about 
why Shoeless Joe, I never did anything in the 1990, never did anything bad in the 1919 World Series. He had 362, he drove in so many runs. Uh, he took the money and he tried to give it back, but nobody wanted it back. And so it wasn't his fault. Yeah, so many, so many people, when you, you talk about Ted Williams, Lenny Randall tells me so many things about what Ted Williams meant yeah. to him. And, yeah. and just in the, the most bizarre ways, like Ted Williams took Lenny Randall fishing yes. to demonstrate, you know, how your wrist should be when you're at bat. But like, sure. it was just unbelievable reading that about Ted Williams in that chapter for sure. So same here, different ball player, different type of person, Stan Musial. And what I really found fascinating in the Stan Musial chapter was him telling me how he got involved with John Kennedy, the Kennedy family, and politics. Yes. And he ended up campaigning with, with a group, including James Michener, the author, and actresses Shelley Winters and Angie Dickinson. Yeah. But as you sit this up, you fade out when he talks about learning that John Kennedy had been shot. Tell me a little more about what happened in the tape there. They did not talk about it, or how did that just sort of fade you, out? You've got, you've got what we said. I mean, I, like I said, I don't leave anything out. That was it. You know, maybe I should have asked the question, how did you feel after you were shot? But I knew the answer to that, so I didn't ask. You know, he felt the same way you and I did. It was like the end of the world. Yeah. No, Stan was such a gentleman, such a great, great person. He and Mishner were close friends, by the way. Um, Stan trained in St. Petersburg, and Mishner taught at Eckerd College. And so they they often spent time together. Yeah, one of the the... the I don't know if it's a great thing about the, the pandemic is you, you're home a lot more. So, you know, the TV is oh, always home. out. I'm home just the same. I haven't. Pandemic doesn't affect my life. No, no, no but it's funny for me, the television's on in the background. And I, I think like two or three days ago, there was an episode of that girl with Marlo Thomas. And go. I turned my head. And I see Stan Musial was on an episode of, you know, of Batgirl, which I, you know, I, I probably watched that show as a kid, but never, you know, saw that episode. I found that pretty interesting. You know, you can yourself on saying what channels you watch, you know, you can watch <laughs> TV and exactly. all the nostalgia channels. Absolutely. So obviously anyone who, who's purchased my books, every acknowledgement has your name in it. It's no secret that my last three books are inspired by your oral history histories, but they're on specific teams and about a specific thing. It's, you know, New York Mets first, New York Rangers first, New York Islanders first, and their oral history of their first coaches, first goals, such and such. Um, you know, there are other books. I remember AJ and I had Faye Vincent on when he did a book. Uh, we would have played the, the game for nothing. Baseball yeah. stars of the 50s and 60s talk yeah. about the love of the game. Um, those all have each chapter kind of have a, a, the same central thread. But because you've done so many different interviews, each one of your chapters stands on its own. Why is that important? Why do you think that, first of all, it adds so much to the book, but why was that important for you for each of these chapters to just stand alone? I was just putting the chapters down. You're the one, you're the one who's made the connection. I'm like, these are these are these are the these are the people who um, I thought had the most enjoyable interviews. That's all. I mean, each one had something about somebody, you know. And 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 the big the biggest stars, you know, Musial, Roy Campanella, Roger Maris. Um, I mean, it, it was nice that they had you know interesting aspects to them. But uh, they might have been interesting, even if they had 
you know, talked about, you know, how they did the laundry and wash the dishes in the morning. You know, they, they're big enough names uh, that people would want to read what they have to say, I would hope. You know, but you get to that. It's not just the big names that the Ted Williams is and the Sam Usuals. It's the Jim Brosnans and the Gene Connollys. Now, and we had Gene Connolly on years ago, and I haven't gone back to review our interview with him, but him talking about the why he wanted to go to Jerusalem. I remember as a kid you yep. know, reading the papers this happened, and it's just a terrific story. So how much did you want to balance, I guess, you know, great stories versus big names? That's what you do. You balance the great stories with the big <laughs> names. That's exactly yeah, how it works, yes. Yes, I mean, I... I some of the people stood out in my mind, you know, people I loved. I mean, Connolly was one of them. He was just, and, and you, people don't realize what an utterly, unbelievably incredible athlete this guy was. He was a star pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. And um, the owner of the Phillies didn't want him going to the Celtics to start working out with the Celtics. And so they ended up trading him to the Boston Red Sox. Um, and you know, how many people can you name? The Bush is another one, but how many people can you name uh, that that actually played professional basketball and professional baseball? There, and the Sanders who played baseball and football. Well, and baseball and football, yeah, and, and Bo, Bo Jackson as well, yeah, and Bo Jackson, right? But the basketball thing is amazing because Connolly was about six eight, Connolly was a big guy, and um. You know, I went to his home in, in uh, it was in Foxborough, uh, near where the football stadium is, and interviewed him there. And he was just, he was as open and charming as you possibly could ask. Oh, we left out Danny Ainge, too. We can't leave out Danny Ainge. Don't leave out Danny Ainge. That's <laughs> right. Um, you know, you, you also, in the course of, you know, talking, kind of answered two questions indirectly that I had. One of which was, you know, in this YouTube era, um, or, or podcast era, you know, have you ever thought of, of taking all these interviews and just boiling them down each week to like a one hour episode and, and actually having the tapes aired in their entirety? Sure. Anybody want to uh, set up the uh, means of doing that? Give me a call. <laughs> I'll call you later. <laughs> um, Quite frankly, uh, I have I have no idea how to do that. I, okay. I um, understand something. I only know how to do one thing. You know, that's to sit at this typewriter and type. I mean, that's 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 all I really know how to do. Do you still use an actual typewriter? No, no. <laughs> uh, and the second yeah. question, you, Jack, you, I'll, are, tell you I'll tell you a funny story. In nineteen. 1978, while I was doing the Bronx Zoo, I saw an ad in the New York Times. A guy in the, in Washington had a Xerox 8000 word processor. It was $4,000. It was nine and a half inch disks. Remember, you used to have floppy disks? Yeah. This was a nine and a half inch floppy disk. And I drove from wherever I was, Englewood, I guess. New Jersey to Washington and bought this thing for $4,000. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I threw all the typewriters away, typed on this thing. If I made a mistake, you correct the mistake. And then you type the thing out. You printed it out on a printer. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. It, it cut my, you know, junk work literally in half. 
you also also answered one of the other questions. You did, you know, allude to uh, Whispers of the Gods Volume 2. So um, when can we expect that? When can you expect that? Well, I, I have... I have transcribed my Doc Ellis tapes, which are amazing. He was one of my closest friends. He was on the St. Pete Pelicans, the winner of the Senior Professional Baseball League in 1989, 1990. The Forever Boys. Forever Boys, another great book. <laughs> yes. And every, every third word is motherfucker. I mean, it's just <laughs> hilarious. Doc was one of the true great ones. Um, but but I tell you, a very, very sensitive guy. I mean, it's a fascinating story that 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 he will tell. Um, and and I'm I'm typing up the Elston Howard conversation right now. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, Eldon Auker. Eldon Auker is the third one. Uh, Eldon Auker started with the Detroit Tigers, and he has a lot of wonderful things to say about Hank Greenberg. And then he was traded to Boston, where Joe Cronin was the manager. And Joe Cronin called every pitch from his shortstop position. Cronin was the shortstop and the manager. And it drove the Boston pitchers absolutely crazy. And it drove Eldon so crazy that at the end of the year, he demanded that they trade him. And so they traded to the St. Louis Browns, which is also an interesting story. As Eldon talks about his time with the St. Louis Browns, where one year they drew 200 fans a game. If you you can picture that. This was not long before they moved to Baltimore. But... uh, So, yeah. so I've started. You know, when am I going to finish? Who knows? I don't. Awesome, Eldon Alker, If I, I recall, had that great book, um, "Sleeper Cars," and I think "Flannel Uniforms." I, I think was his book. Um, great stuff, Eldon Alker. But you know, also, we, you know, we we had Bobby Valentine on when the book came out as well. Another great book of yours is out as well, "Valentine's Way," and of course, "Whispers of the God." Both available on Amazon. Peter. As always, thanks for coming on with us. Um, you surely have been an inspiration for me for many years. Um, my late mother used to listen to our show each week, and she she would say that Peter Golenbach always was her favorite guest. Um, just thinking about that right now brings a smile to my face. Um, so, again, thanks for always coming on whenever we, we call. We really appreciate it. You're very kind. Uh, anytime, uh, it's an honor for me to be on your show. Thank you so much. The great Peter Golenbach, author of Whispers of the Gods, available now on Amazon.